and where you're ministering at the moment. Thanks. Hi everyone, so I'm Martin and I am uh, I'm married to Lisa and we have two young children, uh, Elizabeth who is seven and Alexander who is four and we're in Thiel, uh, the parish of Thiel which is in West Berkshire, um, Oxford Diocese, about five miles west of Reading and um, a single parish, a single church parish. So yeah, I'll be, I'll be there a while I think. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. And um, just, you know, briefly, what, what was your sort of journey to ministry? What was your background? How did you um, get to this point? What, what, how did the Lord call you to this point? Um, well, I, I uh, moved to London for work when I was sort of fresh out of uni and um, worked in politics for a while uh, as a political aide. So, walked those halls of Parliament. It's as amazing as you think it would be. Um, and then I went back to my original sort of what, what I knew, which was law. So I spent quite a bit of time uh, in, in charity law, which is a bit like company law with a bit of chocolate sprinkles on top. Um, and did that for a while. And then, and it was while I was doing that, um, I remember speaking to one of the partners of our law firm. And I, and I, I always remember he was there when, we, when I got there. Every day, he was always there. And he was always there when I left. And I said to him one day, what, what sort of hours do you do? I thought I did long hours. What sort of hours did you, do you do? And I always remember his answer. Now, this, is, this, this doesn't go for every law firm. This was a law firm in St. Paul's in London. So it's one of those city law firms. But he said to me, I give myself one late start a week so I can see my children before they get up. And I give myself one early finish a week so I can see them before they go to bed. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's not me. (laughs) And um, however, I did know that I wanted to to work hard for the Lord. And he was sowing seeds. Well, if you're going to work hard, why not do it for me? (laughs) So there we are. Um, Long story short, um, I, uh, I became a ministry trainee. Um, spent four years doing that, did Cornhill and that sort of thing. And then uh, Oak Hill College, ordination, and here I am. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thanks so much. And um, what are you speaking to us about today? Humility indifference is the title, is that right? Yeah, it is. Humility indifference, that's what I'm speaking to you about. Fantastic. Brilliant. Can I pray for you? Please. Yeah. Our gracious Lord, thank you so much for the gift of this day. Thank you for the gift of this conference, for the gift of being together in person, um, uh, in one place. And thank you for the gift of Martin and um, for him speaking to us today. We we pray your blessing upon him and all of us as he speaks. Please um, bless us richly according to your immeasurable grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Brilliant. Well, when I, while I um, get set up here, why not turn, uh, I'm not going to speak on this for a while, but why not turn to John chapter 13, if you've got a Bible with you, and that, that will just um, mean that you're ready by the time we get there. And um, I haven't got a handout, so you've got to do all the work yourself, I'm afraid. So I'm going to turn to John chapter 13 as well. Now, some of you will know this story already, so apologies for those of you who do. But I will never forget my first day at Oak Hill Theological College. The late and great Mike Ovey was speaking to us first years. And he was speaking to us about college life. But partway through his talk, he told us, and I'll never forget this, he he asked us to look around the room. And he said, look to your left and look to your right. We don't talk about grades We're not in competition with each other. What we're doing here is not about beating our course mates. No. Your desire should not be how you compare with others here. Your desire should be for the people on your left and the people on your right to be the best that they can be for Christ. And on the back of that, I heard and witnessed and experienced amazing love from others in the college. And I thought that was a truly formative uh, moment in my training. Much is made of the pastor's ability to preach and teach and work with children, be sociable, to get in and amongst and so on. Uh, Theological college has much theology and academia, and that is good and right. 
But what about the characteristic in the godly leader of humility? It was clear to me that before we were to pick up a book or write an essay, Mike wanted for us to see that humility was key for formation and pastoral responsibility. So whether or not you're in training now or considering training or in ministry, this is appropriate. You're considering training. You look up at the person preaching or leading a talk in church or on camp and you think, I'd love that. I'd love for all these people to look up at me like they're looking up at them. You're in training. How well can you identify right now that it is all too easy to look around and think about competition, even thinking about the potential future and how you are going to compare with the people around you. You're out of training, and someone stands up before you to preach or lead a conference talk. And you think, I could do better than that. I'm really, really sorry if I contribute to that sin over the next 40 minutes or so. (laughs) Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul is here addressing the sin of pride, isn't he? A lack of humility. Thinking of oneself more highly than one should is essentially a form of self-worship, isn't it? Where we think we are worthy of praise. Augustine talked about humanity being curved in on itself. Me, me. I want the glory. I want the praise. We know this is the natural disposition of the human heart. And this affects us as ministers, potential ministers, servants of the gospel, no less than everyone else. And it seems to me that a helpful place then for us to start this afternoon is by recognising the link between our humility before the Lord and our ministry. So that's, if you want, a first point, my first point. Recognise the link between our humility before the Lord and our ministry. Let me throw some verses at you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to humility before the God of the universe. And yet peppered throughout Scripture is the reality that if we're not humble, God will humble us. Let me share a few more verses with you. Jesus said Luke in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 5, he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays a lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. You step Bible, you'll find some more verses on that. Now think of this for a moment in relation to the pastor-teacher. If we are not humble, God will bring us low. What that means, God will decide. But we might say, well, okay, that will happen. It might happen to me, it will happen to me, but at least it's only happening to me. But remember this. There is no sin so personal that it doesn't affect others. So if I gossip... It's not just me who's affected by that sin, is it? I'm drawing somebody else into that sin as I gossip. And then, of course, I could get to the person I'm gossiping about. There's no sin so personal, it doesn't affect others. If I look at internet pornography as a married man, it's not just me, is it? I'm endorsing what's going on. But not only that, I'm married. So the affection that belongs to my wife, I'm giving it to somebody else. There's no sin so personal, it doesn't affect other people. If I'm not humble, if I'm proud, not only can I cause damage to others as I see myself as worthy of praise, 
But in the long run, when God shows us who truly is worthy of praise, it can deeply damage the ministry. I've no intention of pointing fingers here. So suffice it to say, there are churches in uh, this country and abroad where the conceitedness of the leader or leadership left devastation. Yes, for the pastor, but also for their family and for many more. Therefore, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. But it goes both ways. Because James chapter 4, verse 6, yes, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So, few more, few more verses. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. And at this point, we praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because his humility meant riches not just for him as he now sits on the throne, but for all who follow him. His humility has far-reaching consequences, didn't it? And we praise him that he was willing to humble himself to death, even death on a cross. Knowing the link between our humility and our ministry helps us to keep walking alongside in our minds and our hearts those we minister alongside. Clearly, humility is important. So, I just wanted to spend a few minutes in Psalm 130. Because if we are to be humble in our lives and in our ministry, it starts with a right view of self. I told you to turn to John, but actually... I forgot we were going to look at this first. So, I, so uh, Psalm 130. Um, we are going to just spend a little time on the first half of this psalm. Have a look down with me at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Psalmist cries out to God. Why? For mercy. Verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. It's quite a thing to cry out for mercy, isn't it? It requires a humility that doesn't always feel very comfortable. Help me, I cannot help myself. But the psalmist is desperate, and he's desperate because he knows how offensive his sin is before God and how damaging his sin is to a relationship with God. And his response is absolutely right. Jesus, in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, said, Blessed are those who are poor. That, that is, blessed are those who are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt. Those who know they can offer nothing for their salvation. To buy themselves out of the depth of woe, that is, the consequence of our sin. But Jesus also said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who don't just know and acknowledge we fall short but who grieve the fact that we grieve our God when we sin, when we turn our back on God, when we treat him like he is unimportant, when we want to be the boss of our own lives, when that role belongs to the creator God. And so this is what we see here in Psalm 130, someone who grieves, someone who mourns, someone who bewails their sin and the consequence of their sin before God. And as he acknowledges and grieves his sin, he utters a sobering truth. And it's a truth that makes him so desperate. Verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? He says that because he knows that God knows him. Really knows him. I wonder if you've read the book uh, Great Expectations or seen one of the adaptations. Set in the early part of the 19th century, there's Pip. And he gets this opportunity to be, I don't know, a gentleman. What we might call a, 
uh, a respectable gentleman. He's, he gets the opportunity to, get, to go to London and go to the male equivalent of a finishing school. Back then, you weren't really made a gentleman, though. It was part of who you were by birth. However, Pip got the money and off he went. The problem was, though, that he met a man, he met a man there called Bentley Drummle. We might say or describe him as a pure-breed gentleman. And the problem was, Bentley Drummle knew Pip's background. As far as Bentley Drummle was concerned, Pip was no gentleman. No matter how hard he tried, no matter what he wore, no matter how he talked, Pip's attempts at making himself respectable by means of money and clothes would never be successful. To Bentley Drummle... Pip would always be a blacksmith apprentice. Well, like Bentley Drummond knew the real Pip, God knows the real psalmist, and he knows the real us. And here's the reality here, because I could now wax lyrical about how I'm basically just a nice guy with an unfortunate tendency to mess up. Would you be fooled? Of course not. God sees the real Me, there's no fool in God. He sees my pride. He sees my arrogance. He sees my self-centeredness and perverse and cruel tendencies. Before God, there is no hiding from the fact that I entertain being a violent rebel before him. I am the one in whom the stain of sin and sinfulness goes down to the very root of my very core, the last atom of the last molecule. I don't just mess up. I sin consciously and unconsciously, looking to other things to satisfy me, 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 rather than running into the arms of a loving God. And the psalmist is clear, before God, all our sins are laid bare, and if he should keep a record of our wrongs, there should be no hope, no way we could approach him, the holy, perfect, sinless God. Now, we know the answer to this is the cross of Jesus Christ, where justice and mercy meet. And yet here in the psalm, in this first half of the psalm, we see penitence, we see grieving of sin, we see someone with a right view of themselves who recognise the need for justice and the desperate need for mercy. And if we are going to be humble leaders... We are to recognize our need for mercy before we dare minister to others. We are to live a life of daily dependence on God's grace. A great reminder that we are not the Savior. Jesus is. We're flawed. We're fallible. We hold to the reality that despite the virtue of our title or our clerical collar, or a recognition by the church that we're called to paid ministry of whatever sort, we are saved sinners. Make no mistake, people will hold you in esteem. They will. There is no doubt about that. How will you handle that? It starts with a right view of self. Well then, let's now address what I was asked to address in this talk which is humility in difference. We've seen how humility or a lack of humility can affect our ministry. We've seen that humility starts with the right view of self, and that then should encourage us to practice humility in difference. Part of what it is to be in the Church of England is to, as an old boss of mine put it, to live in a church with fuzzy edges. And I'm not specifically talking about race or culture, although that is in the mix. Rather, I'm talking about the reality of a church that is biblically clear on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is biblically clear. And we've got the five solas, haven't we, if we need anything uh, to hold on to there. Scripture alone, faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I had to look down. I should have done that by memory, shouldn't I? (laughs) Hopeless. Or we say a Christian is someone who bears the family name, Christ. We are Christians because we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in his family. Whilst at the same time, a church has varying degrees of practical belonging to the local church. In your local church, you will have some people who are well stuck in and some who are not. 
you will have people who consider the church their local church, but are really on the fringe of church life. You will have people, everyone in your church knows, and it drives you absolutely bonkers when they tell you how key this person is in church life and you've never laid eyes on them. The church is a church of fuzzy edges, and naturally that means we're different, not just in, sometimes in theology, but in culture and race and general understanding of church life and practice and the gospel. And yet if we're humble, by the grace of God, our heart's desire will be to walk with these people towards the throne of grace. And I just want to emphasise that phrase, walking alongside people. Our job is to bring people to a knowledge of the truth, our calling, our heart's desire. But if there are differences in theology between us and members of our congregation, humility recognises that we're not always right, and if it were not for our God powerfully at work in us, we would be in the dark and espousing error. And that should therefore drive us to humble, dogged, determined, daily, disciplined, dependence on God to change hearts rather than putting ourselves at the centre of change and discipleship. One of my, being, when you're uh, rector of a parish, uh, you end up on different boards of different things at various times. Um, one of the things I'm on at the moment is what's called the Board of Patronage for Oxford Diocese. And that means that for my patch, which is West Berkshire, I'm involved in interviewing um, and appointing incumbents if the Oxford Diocese is the patron. Someone was recently asked as a follow-up question in an interview, what if people don't agree with you in your church? What if people don't agree with your theology? And the answer, in part, was, well, they would have to. Now, we believe in absolutes, don't we? Of course we do. We believe in absolutes. Substitutionary atonement, absolutely no no doubt. The Trinity, absolutely. They are non-negotiables. But his answer, while I'm sure, having been in the room, was coming from a place of faithfulness to God and his word, was lacking in humility. A better answer, if I may, would have been something like this. Well, I will come alongside people and open up God's word so that we can together see what it says. After all, that's what people did with me. I would listen to them and see why they believe what they believe. And I would keep central in all that I do, God's word. That would have been practicing humility, indifference, wouldn't it? So how do we practice humility and difference? What do we do if someone has a different opinion to us on how we approach the Bible? How can we show humility as we lead people of different ages to us or different cultures to us? Look how Jesus did it. In Jesus, we have the greatest example of a leader who mixed with foreigners, spent time with people who were different from himself, spoke truth in love, who told people they were wrong, who was clear in what people needed to know, and yet was a leader who would be humble himself. Look at Jesus. We're going to read, or I'm going to read for us, John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What Jesus does here is extraordinary. Jesus was uncompromising with the Pharisees unwilling to put up with poor theology from Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, was willing to walk into Gentile territory, even though that would make him unpopular with fellow Jews. He was willing to speak to that woman at the well, despite her being a social outcast. Jesus was willing to mix with those who were different, and yet it was this same Jesus who was this humble leader, Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Yes, to the end of that last breath on the cross, but also he loved them with utterly surpassing and unimaginable love. And so during supper, Jesus rises, verse 4, and he laid aside his outer garments. Incidentally, when else does Jesus use uh, John, the gospel writer John, use this turn of phrase, to lay aside or lay down something. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. Laying aside is part of the characteristic of our Saviour. Jesus had it all. He was going back to the Father, verse 3. He was going home, back to where he had come from. Jesus, who left the glory and the splendor and the majesty of the throne room of heaven and came down to the poverty of humanity. (laughs) He came down to the poverty of a humanity that would reject him. And he showed, despite an unimaginable, uncomparable gulf, He would lay aside his crown to serve. And why? Why would he do that? It was love, wasn't it? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Love was the driving force behind Jesus' humility. He loved them to the end. So what do we see with Jesus? Someone willing to serve, someone willing to lay aside any claims he had, someone willing to, verse 4, get dressed up to be prepared to serve, to look the part of a servant. We see Jesus being a humble servant to people who didn't quite get it. Peter didn't get it, did he? Didn't stop Jesus serving him. And Jesus calls us to do the same. So what do we do when there are fundamental differences in theology? I said to somebody recently that I find find a significant chunk of my ministry is myth-busting. I think this happens most in when I'm approached for baptism, actually, from people outside of the church. Myth-busting. People think they know what Christianity is. But more than that, they're bold in their misunderstandings. And I think I see, as I say, see this most when it comes to baptism. 
And my, my calling is to call out falsehood and to present the truths of the gospel. Jesus wouldn't allow Nicodemus to get away, or any Pharisee, to get away with rubbish theology. He told them what they needed to know. And yet this is the same Jesus who takes the role of a slave in washing his disciples' feet. Being humble doesn't mean we don't say truth. Jesus was teaching Peter and the disciples, even as he was washing their feet. He never stopped being a teacher, but he never stopped being a servant either. Now, this, this can be really hard, but it goes back to the Mike Ovey point. Our desire should be for others to be the best that they can be for Christ. We are, all of us, going to need to answer questions on difficult, controversial issues, like human sexuality. It might be due to living in love and faith. It might be in the follow-up to a sermon or a pastoral conversation we're having in church. Most of us are likely to have people in our congregations who vehemently disagree with the biblically orthodox position. How are we to be humble in this difference? Remember, we are their servants. Look at Jesus. Remember, we're their servants. So we work hard to present God's word faithfully and clearly. We speak truth, but we remember Jesus' call for us to step up and wash each other's feet. A question we should all be asking in our ministry is this. Do your congregation know you love them? In parish ministry, we must love our people, but we must also give them every opportunity to see that we love them. Why? Not to look pious, but to give everyone the opportunity to see that when we do speak truth that they struggle with, we're speaking truth in love. That might mean, as it's meant for me up to now in my ministry, planning very carefully when you're going to present a truth that is a hot potato, you know, too hot to handle, to your church congregation. Waiting to show them love so that they can see that this is not the Martin Davies show and I'm on an agenda to just tell them what I want them to hear. No, I'm holding up and I'm holding out God's word in love. Teaching isn't teaching devoid of relationship it's holding up and holding out god's word with the backdrop of loving relationships and there are of course different other differences in church life where we will do well to practice humility indifference where we will love people like jesus what about when i am from a different culture to people um, in my church and my community. We will all of us have different people in our churches who are from different areas to us. They're, they're, they're different culturally to us. And our hearts must yearn for them just as much as those who look and speak like us. So what does it mean to practice humility with that difference? I was speaking to a couple last week who, God willing, will be our new mission partners. And they're going to be on their way to an African country. Can't say which one because it's going to be heavily Muslim and all a little bit secret. Um, but when they go, they are going to have to spend quite a significant chunk of time learning a new language. And uh, because of that, the husband will be able to teach in a theological school there. And the wife can be equipped uh, in her role of reaching the lost for Christ. And we might say, well, that makes sense. And it makes sense for them. Of course it does. They're off to a new country. They need to do that work of getting to know the people and the language. Otherwise, they can't be witnesses. Absolutely. But we as ministers of the gospel must also recognize that we need to do that too. The world is on our doorstep. We may not need to learn a language. But let me tell you about Matt. Matt was on the staff team of a church in London um, with me about 10 years ago. And at the time, the church had um, Tamil brothers and sisters who held another service in the same building. However, many of them said that uh, they went to this particular Paris church when in actual fact, they just went to an, another service within that building. Make sense? 
Now, Matt realised that not only were there significant numbers of Tamil uh, members in the community, but there were these loving, wonderful brothers and sisters within our church who wanted a relationship with the rest of the church family. And one day, Matt came to church, and to everyone's astonishment, he started to speak Tamil. I don't know if you know much about Tamil, but it is really hard to learn a whole other alphabet and all the rest of it. It was to their delight and to everyone's astonishment. Turns out, he had spent months of his time as a ministry apprentice learning how to read and speak Tamil to help them feel more part of the church. Not long after that, the leadership of the church made a bold decision, which included having hymns, uh, choosing hymns that could be sung in English and Tamil simultaneously, and having on the screen English and Tamil, doing the same with the liturgy, and having a direct translation of the sermon in real time as well. Both how Matt acted and the leadership of the church acted were lessons in humility and difference of recognising that to reach the nations, we must step into, a, uh, into other cultures, of not thinking our way is best, nor the only way, but just the way it is at present, until Christ shows us how we can help others be the best that they can be for Christ. When Jesus walked into the Decapolis, you know, the, uh, the predominantly Gentile area, he spent time with people who would have, on first seeing the Jewish Jesus approach, they probably thought he was hostile. Jesus approached people who probably thought he didn't know them and couldn't relate to them. But the gospel transcends culture. And so we must be ready to understand those around us so that we can share the good news of Jesus. So get to know your communities around you and then go don't think you can't reach people because of your uh, accent or your language or the color of your skin because if you don't go who will humility indifference let me leave you with these words from the ordination service of deacons To serve this royal priesthood, God has given a variety of ministries. Deacons are ordained so that the people of God may be better equipped to make Christ known. Theirs is a life of visible self-giving. Christ is the pattern of their calling and their commission as he washed the feet of his disciples so they must wash the feet of others. Amen. Stay there, Martin. Thank you so much indeed. Um, We do have some time for questions, so um, I'll uh, direct the questions at you. uh, And if there aren't any straight away, I can ask one. Ross. Yeah, Martin, that was uh, a really beautiful example you gave towards the end there of the the chap learning Tamil and the way that congregation welcomed in the the speakers of, of Tamil as part of their, their service. And in my context, and, and maybe this is true for other people here as well, there isn't um, a sort of obvious language barrier to, to people of another culture. It's more to do with things like uh, class or educational background, or, you know, other kind of things as well. And I wondered if you could maybe help us think about some parallel examples oh. of, of how as churches we could do more to be, yeah, in, including that kind of diversity and difference and seeing how we can be more humble in that. Yeah, thank you. I, um, I, I was thinking about this, um, of putting this into my talk, and I, and I didn't. So, but let me, in fact, so it's not a, it's not a finished thought. This is going to be fascinating. Um, <laughs> I, for the recording, I'm black. <laughs> no, I say, I, I say that partly because a super, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the one of the things about this, of course, is that if you were listening to me um, on the recording, you might have thought that I'm not, and um, 
the, perhaps the tendency is to think, because I'm black, I'm going to find that really easy to reach black people. I wonder if you think that. Tertiary educated, born in England, went to a predominantly white school. When I started A-levels, I was the only black person in the school. In A-levels, it changed a bit. So I wonder how many people think that. And then I wonder how many people... But how many people would think that of you? Because you're white, you can reach anybody of the same skin colour. It's nonsense, isn't it? So how can I reach people who are, who are, um, uh, who are black, who, are, who have the same skin colour as me, but they are African? I, you know, I've got some experience with the Caribbean because it's where my parents came from. But how can I reach people? It's the same. It's the same. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking race here, and you asked about other things. But at the moment, I'm talking about race. It's the same. It's the you've just got to get stuck in. You've got to remember that, um, as I said, when Jesus walked into the Decapolis, those those Gentile people probably saw Jesus dressed as a Jew, looking like a Jew, and thought he's just not going to get us. And you've just got to do the hard work of saying if unless I. Uh, I understand where they're coming from. I, I can identify in some way, shape or form with some of their background, some of why they might uh, not want to follow Jesus or some of the reasons they might want to go to church or whatever it is. If we do that, we've at least got a stepping stone. What did I mean by the gospel transcends culture? I mean that culture moves and shifts with the tide of public opinion, but the gospel is static. It remains and we need opportunities to get the gospel into the lives and hearts of these people, despite the moving trends of public opinion. Um, so we need to do that work. Um, in terms of, think, in terms of um, uh, a cult, uh, uh, class or, um, uh, you said something else was, um, uh, education. education, educational background, um, it seems to me it's, it's the same thing, but just slightly different um there is such a thing as reverse snobbery (laughs) and we've got to be very careful about that um we've got to be careful not to be reverse snobs because people have wealth Um, we just can't relate to them well get to know people it's a marathon not a sprint and we don't know what's going on in people's hearts and unless we take the time to well, unless we take the time to be like our saviour, Jesus, he was willing to go where it felt uncomfortable, despite what other people thought, we, we won't reach those people. And again, if we don't go, who will? So I hope that's a, probably still an unfinished thought, but I hope that's helpful. Tom? Um, thank you, Martin. I thought there was some um, wisdom in your point about letting people, the congregation, see that you love them before you tackle things that are going to be controversial and then be coming at it from a very different worldview. Um, how, how long is that time? How do you know that you've reached it? So I've only yeah. been in a year. You've only been in uh, two years. So have you reached that time? And if so, how did you know? Mm. I'm just thinking, yeah. I'm to run LLF. I've no intention of running LLF. I've only been there a year. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like it's way too soon for me yeah. but how would I know when that yeah. moment and, and, and I totally understand that and I'm in that position really as well because so much of my time has been under COVID um, I, I wanted to I've just, we've just been talking about this I wanted to get a bit of technology into the church screen, things like that and when I first mentioned this in church it was met with absolute horror absolute horror um, and Lisa my wife it's okay, Martin, you know, God can do mighty wonders without technology. It's okay, just keep going. Um, we've just got the screen installed and a new mixing desk and we're live streaming. And people were thrilled. And that was because, unbeknown to me at the time, because I hadn't thought it through, people were just nervous about me. They were just nervous about what I do. They just they, they didn't know. They just thought I might have an agenda to ruin their church. They saw me as young. They thought I, my, my first thought was to get rid of the choir. They just they were nervous. They were scared. And it was only until I had had opportunities to spend time with them and, and love them um, that they realised that 
actually they could get on board with the vision and I could encourage them to, um, to get on board with the vision as well. Um, how long that takes, I don't know. I think it's a matter of discernment. I, 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 I did some things um, when I first arrived in the church which were quick, partly because I felt that if I didn't do it now, I couldn't do, it in, I couldn't do things in good conscience. And also because I felt that if I didn't change... Members of my, some members of my congregation would say, well, you've lived with it this far, so why change now? But some things I recognise that I could wait for. And, um, uh, and I, I, you know, we, we, walk, we, we go into churches where we've got all sorts of ideas about what we, what we might want, and we've got to remember that we come in as a solution to an interregnum. Mm. And before us... They've worked really hard in an interregnum. They're exhausted, but also there's a whole history there. People have given their life. They love their church. They love their church family. And then this person comes in and says, right, it's my way. Mm. And that's really, really hard. Mm. And we don't often see the interregnum. We're normally the solution. And it's only because I've been on the board of patronage that I get to see a bit of the interregnum. And it's tough for a church. So we, as long as we've got that in our minds, that People are, they want change, they sorry, they may want change, they might tell you they want change, but change is hard. And you've got to recognise that it's humility, it's humility and difference. There's, there's differences, there's been a whole heap of, uh, of people before you, they've had one way, you come in with another. Are you just going to say it's my way or the highway, or are you going to walk alongside these people towards the throne of grace? And it should be the latter, obviously. <laughs> so, um, so I think it's, it's, it's discernment, isn't it, about the, the church congregation recognising just how much they've gone through before you've arrived there uh, and recognising that you're not the first and you're not going to be the last. Mm. Um, I remember my parents' church, um, the previous vicar but one wanted to get rid of the choir um, I don't know why, it's quite a nice, it's a good choir. Um, but wanted to get rid of the choir, and um, the choir's still there, and she's gone. There are some things that are going to remain, and you've got to be discerning about what, what you're going to change, if, you, if, if, if at all. Yeah. Can I ask an extension to that, that question? Yeah. As it relates to, like, to ministry teams, some of us are curious part of teams, some of us will be incumbents where we might receive a curate or yeah. be involved in a church team in another way. And um, there's, there are quite a few unknowns when you come into a team or you receive someone new, and sometimes that can be difficult, painful. Can you share something about exercising um, humility and difference in the context of a diverse team, you know, who presumably you're aligned in terms of the gospel, but you might think differently on all sorts of things, theologically, Socially, you know, culturally in the church. Yeah, um, well, I've, I've worked in a team, and it was remarkable because we were all on the same page, <laughs> which is so rare, isn't it? I, I think. Um, yeah, well, I mean, yes. So this, this go, I think, goes back to my point about when, when, when that chat. He was lovely. When, when he said, everyone has to agree with me, I, I knew what he meant. He, he meant, this is really important to me, and I truly believe that it's right that everyone holds to this position, and, um, and it's good for the gospel, um, and, it, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, the, the problem with it is that it's not quite how we work as people. Um, one, we, if, if, um, if you're not the rector of a team ministry, um, you, you've made that choice to apply to be a, uh, an assistant uh, minister in that church. And, and that rector has the final say. Um, and you've got to respect that. And you've got to be humble in that. And... and um, in fact, I was thinking about this for last, the seminar about being a new incumbent, about, um, uh, you know, where, where's the line? You've got to think about where's your line. And, if, and you've got to think that through really carefully before you go into ministry. There are certain things where you might think, how far will I get to the line? You know, I'll get to just before saying the Hail Mary. And that's it. You know, where's your line? Um, 
But if 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 you are if you're a curate, I, th- I suppose I suppose the thing that I'm saying is you've got to respect those in authority, um, and you and um, and you you can l- lovingly show that humility of sitting under God's word, and you don't. We heard it before. It's sort of being patient doesn't mean you agree with everything. Um, you've got to you've got to trust God that He's He's at work. Um, you, you, as a curate, you can't change everything, and that's really important to know. You, you, as in, you can't. You, you know, you, it might not be the, case, the place for you to say, "Oh, I'm going to change my incumbent's position on on this," and and um, and uh, sometimes you're you're reaching to do that, um, and then you're reaching to get your to move on to an incumbency or, or something like that. But um, yeah. Um, I'm not answering this very well. Maybe somebody else has better wisdom on this. <laughs> Thank you so much indeed, Martin. We've probably got time for one more question. Was that a niche? Or... No, no. <laughs> yeah, it was a niche. Any more? That's wonderful. Okay, Martin, will you Pleasure. please um, pray for us in this regard? Thank you so much. Jesus left the glory of the majesty of the throne room of heaven to humbly serve us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who shows us in the most vivid way uh, humility, indifference, the sheer gulf between him and us, and yet he was humble in his service. He came to serve, and we want to pray, Lord, that you would help us to be humble as our Saviour was humble, uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to uh, delight in the truth of the gospel and delight in uh, the ministry that you give to us uh, to share the good news of the Lord Jesus. And yet, Father, we want to pray that you would help us to do this in a humble way as we walk alongside people so that they can be the best that they can be for Christ. We pray, Lord, for humility, for a right view of ourselves. Show us ourselves, Lord. Show us who we are before you, the holy triune God. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we see ourselves and we see our need for a saviour, we would then uh, walk alongside people with humility as we serve others as the Lord has served us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Show our appreciation to Master.